Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Chad! Ooh, sorry, did I make you swerve? Hope I didn't. Hope I didn't. I know it's probably a little bit annoying. You know, one time I was cruising down the road with my best friend Weston, and we were on our way to go do this big day full of shed hunting, and I actually ended up finding a few sheds that day, and and he found a shed or two, and and, uh, his dad found a shed as well, and uh, (laughs) his poor dad. He was sitting there in the back of the truck, sitting next to me, and uh, he was sound asleep. I mean, just just dead asleep. We got up pretty early to get a get a full day in of shed hunting. We had to drive a few hours to to get to the property where we were going to be looking, and uh, he was he was out cold. And as we're driving, you know, I you know me, I, if I, especially during shed season, if I'm not driving, man, I'm just scanning everywhere for a shed, you know hoping that uh, I'll spot something. Well, I thought I did. And not only that, but my buddy Weston thought he saw a shed too. And uh, we both just belted out at the top of our lungs, shed! And man, we scared the living daylights of his dad. And uh, turns out it wasn't a shed. It was a corn husk. And it was a total waste of time, and we may have uh, shaved a few uh, years or months off of uh, his uh, poor dad's life there with the heart attack that we gave him. But uh, you get the picture. I'm a little obsessed with shed hunting, and today is an excellent opportunity to learn more about it because we are talking to the guy who has written, as far as I know, the only book there is on shed hunting. And if it's not the only one, I believe it was the first one. It's the OG. It is Mr. Joe Shed himself coming to us to tell us all about shed hunting. And we're not just focusing on whitetails, although uh, that's uh, my favorite critter to chase after. I have a serious appetite and some serious ambitions to go and look for sheds from other species moose elk you've heard me drool over caribou on like the last two episodes of the podcast uh even coos deer would be cool or uh, mule deer i love looking for sheds and a lot of other people do too and you know what it serves as a great opportunity for people to get themselves into the outdoors and really get around these critters and learn all about them and so there's no one better to come on the show and talk about this than mr joe shed himself so i hope you uh while you're driving down the road you know make sure you're uh trying to drive safe don't be distracted or anything but you know maybe find a find a way to carefully uh uh glance for for sheds or something don't don't rear end anybody or or a swerve off the road or anything like that you know be safe be safe of course always most important safety first but i hope you uh get your own road shed sometime and uh you know if you do make sure you uh post it or something tag me and send me send me a picture of it in a in a message or something like that i'd love to see it but without any further ado let's get on here to episode number 42 of the first gen hunter podcast an interview on shed hunting with mr joe shed
What's up, first geners? I hope you're staying warm during this Arctic blast that we have settling in here on much of the middle United States. We have got our share of snow, even more than that. So if you need some, let me know. I could probably work something out for you. The problem I have with all, you know, and I love winter, I, I would be the first to tell you that I generally enjoy winter more than I even enjoy summer. But it makes the shed hunting a little bit hard right now. We got all this fresh powder. I'm pretty sure if an antler were to drop off of a buck's head right in front of me, I wouldn't be able to find it. It would just like sink into the powder and be lost until April. So uh, we need a little bit of a warm up just to melt down some of the snow so some of those tines can start poking up through. But I'm also hopeful that all the uh, super early shed hunters are getting a little bit held off this year and maybe uh, when uh, we can all start getting out there in March and April there will be plenty left for uh, for the rest of us but that's what's going on in my neck of the woods kind of cooped up here getting the itch to stretch my legs so I might try and brave it this this week yet with some snowshoes on or something but tonight we're just going to talk about shed hunting because that makes it a little bit better when you can't go at least you can talk about it and truthfully there is no one better to talk about shed hunting than the guy who has written the original book on shed hunting and that is mr joe shed joe thanks for coming back on the show again hey thanks for having me again Kent. Yeah, definitely. You know that moose story that you uh, gave us in episode twenty was fantastic. That was a that was a very popular episode, and uh, we still still get people listening to it. And uh, it's been well. This is this is episode probably forty two here that we're recording. Uh, by the time this drops, so you're talking uh, that was episode twenty. So, you know, it's been it's been uh been a while since we uh, recorded last, but that was that was a good story. Yeah, well, thank you. It's uh, one of my favorites, too. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I think about that all the time and just think of the, uh, you did such a good job painting the picture of how the suffering went that uh, <laughs> it, it's made me rethink some of my uh, priorities for, for doing a moose hunt someday. But I think uh, there was still enough good good outcome there that I definitely want to give it a shot. But I'll probably bring a buddy and uh, I won't forget where I locked the bike up. <laughs> Excellent planning. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, how are you? Are you uh, you staying thawed out up there in the in the north? Oh, I'm sure trying. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, up until recently, it's been quite a mild winter. But yeah, this Arctic blast is kind of uh, rude awakening, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Are you guys uh, getting out on the ice quite a bit? Yeah, we've been uh, we've been ice fishing here pretty good. Uh, um, started out, it seems like everybody's been having a great winter for ice fishing. Uh, started out pretty slow for me, but lately we've had some pretty good success. So hopefully that keeps going. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You know, I I never I grew up fishing almost you know as, as early as I could figure out how to cast a fishing pole. You know, so that's probably around what age age five or so four or five for most people i suppose that a little mickey mouse uh fishing pole but i did not ice fish and and to be honest with you you know down here at this i guess you'd say at this latitude there people definitely ice fish but it's 
it's nothing like what it is up in your neck of the woods where, I mean, that's almost, that's almost part of, uh, <laughs> the fabric of the culture up there is, uh, ice fishing. Uh, and so, uh, I never, I never did it until, I don't know, I was probably in my late twenties before I ever went ice fishing. And it instantly, I instantly got it once I went, it's like, okay, I see how people get addicted to this, especially when you have a nice, uh, warm hut to sit in and got a little heater going, Man, there that's that's living, man. Yeah, that uh, staying warm makes all the difference for sure. <laughs> Do, are there are there people that will uh still brave the elements up there and just sit out on the uh bare ice? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it's if it's mild, if it's like, you know, 25 degrees out or whatever, I I I'd rather be outside and then, you know, be mobile, hole hopping, you know, if you kind of it's it's the fine line of you know if you stay in the shack you stay warm but then you if the fish aren't underneath you or a lot of times you might get one or two and then you got to move and you know if uh, I I've always said well as you probably know from my moose story I don't mind a little suffering now I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather be a little cold and be able to move around and fish than be nice and toasty and not catch anything so <laughs> yeah that's a good point that's a good point there's a fine line between leisure and uh, and going hard that's for sure. And that may change as they get older and wiser, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It probably depends on how fast you're working through all the fillets in your freezer, too. <laughs> right. Well, before we we transition to the main focus of tonight's conversation, which is shed hunting, and it is getting to be that time of year, which i got to be honest, it, you know, every year, and it's a little bit different because I actually started bow hunting this year, and... Uh, um, I I guess that kind of I mean I've always loved deer hunting, uh, and I think bow hunting only uh, pushed that up a notch. But when it gets to be shed shed season, I always have this like uh, inner debate going on on which I which I enjoy more. But um, uh, it's 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 kind of a tough it's kind of a tough uh, toss up, but. Nonetheless, I'll never give up either one of them. <laughs> and and uh, just from following you for several years, I would imagine you're probably somewhere in that, that same realm of which one do you like better. <laughs> right. I guess it depends on what season is, is actively happening. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, we live for the moment, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> but uh, I bring it up because uh, this... When was it? Was it? It was. Was it like in November when you uh, tagged out on that nice? It was a Minnesota buck, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it looked like a. Was he a eight point? Did I see? It was a seven pointer. Yeah. Okay, seven pointer. Yeah. So uh, can you kind of give us the uh, rundown on what happened there? Yeah. Well, I mean, typical Joe said fashion, you know. Uh, so <laughs> I'm shoveling a a driveway for an old lady that lives in town this winter. And I didn't want to, but I kind of got roped into it. We did get a dusting of snow overnight. So before I went hunting that morning, I went ahead to go shovel her driveway. <laughs> <laughs> we just had a dusting and I'm like, Oh man, I don't want to be doing this, but right. um, maybe that was my, my good deed, my karma or whatever. So uh, I drove North and actually got there a little late. It was just, the sun was just kind of starting up. Uh, to, to light up the sky a little bit when I got there, so I was a little late. But um, yeah, I was just uh, I was uh, I've got a new spot this year. Uh, I, I was on public land, and and uh, I had a couple 
spots I've really liked over the years. And uh, I always hunt with a climber stand. And uh, if you don't if you don't put up a, a permanent stand on public land, um, you lose your spot if you come in and out with a climber. Um, and that's kind of what's you know gotten me. And uh, sure. you know, I mean, there's a little legal issues. I mean, I think where I hunt, you're allowed to put up a stand, you know, seven days before the season, and I don't. So I'm not there to claim it. So I've lost a couple of good spots. But but anyway, that that's one tip you might want to offer. Is, you know, just maybe make a present or, you know, if it's not legal to put a stand up and leave it, you know, just, uh, um, you know, have some kind of marker there or, you know, some flags or, you know, flagging yeah. tape or something like that. I don't know. But, uh, anyway, I got a new spot this year and, uh, I'd seen a couple of deer and a couple of sits and, um, the day I shot that buck, it was, I think I was going to give myself to 11 o'clock and we had that little dusting of snow um, and I was going to get myself to about 11 o'clock and then I was going to see if I could cut a track and try to track a deer down. And, uh, um, it's, it's an exciting way to hunt. It's just, it's a hard way to hunt because you yeah. can't outwit a deer. Um, but, uh, so I'm trying to decide, do I want to do that or do I not? And the deer made the decision for me. He ended up coming through right about 10 o'clock. Okay. And, uh, when I, I was, I was just standing on the ground in this spot. And when I first glimpsed him through the trees, it was, he was really dark and really big. And my first, my first instinct was that it was a bear coming through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> it was so dark, but, uh, he was walking down this little ridge, you know, you know, only like the ridge land, like three feet higher than the rest of the swamp. But it was, you know, a ridge nonetheless. And he stopped and looked at me and, um, from the angle he was coming at, I didn't have a rest, so I was going to freehand my gun. And, um, he stopped and looked at me and I pulled the trigger and nothing happened. Oh no. <laughs> I forgot to, I forgot to, I put my, my, uh, magazine in the, in the gun, but I forgot to put one in the chamber. <laughs> oh no. I pulled the trigger, <laughs> but he, he stood there and he looked at me and, and, uh, so now I'm holding the, the rifle and I'm starting to shake a little bit. Like, you know, do I what's the next move here in the test <laughs> right. match? Do I, do I, uh, you know, I figured he would just run off, but he didn't. He just stood, stood there and looked at me and, and, uh, he, he, you know, st- stayed watching me for a couple of seconds. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do now. And I'm going to start shaking here by holding his gun out like this. So I finally decided to try to work the action slowly. And he stood there and was kind enough to watch me do it. <laughs> and he watched me shoot him. Oh man. <laughs> kind of a boneheaded mistake but and not the first time i've done that either but <laughs> it worked out in the end wow that is that is a pretty uh fortunate day in the woods there but you know the there's something to be learned there too about keeping your composure i've i have found that each year that that i hunt deer you get spotted a lot more than i think uh we remember you know a lot of times we just remember the the successful part of it but i can't remember who it was that that i heard talking i think it was it was uh or it was a friend of mine and he just shot his first buck this year ever and uh he's from down south and and um he uh explained in the story how he kind of had that that same deal where the the deer looked at him and then uh and he thought it was over but deer kind of gave him another chance and you know that happened to me too this year the 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 buck i ended up shooting and actually i almost pulled the same thing you did and thankfully uh, i took my wife 
out for her first gun season this year and so she was sitting in the buddy stand with me and she I said she said did you ever put a round in the in the gun <laughs> oh yeah good good question and so I remembered thankfully before the before the moment of truth and uh but you know as as you become a more experienced deer hunter I I think there's a lot that can be gained from just keeping your composure trying to be as as you know subtle with your moves but at the same time you know if you're hunting in october or something and and uh, you go to draw your bow back and you brush a branch or something you know they're out of there before you <laughs> you can even uh, think to to adjust so they they keep us guessing that's for sure but sometimes they they Absolutely. cut us some slack and uh that's what that's what keeps it exciting <laughs> but right well that's that's uh a good conversation about getting some antlers while they're still attached to the head. But tonight we really want to, we really want to focus on when these antlers stop or start dropping. And, uh, obviously through the years, I mean, if, if people look up Joe and, uh, uh, just look at his, his body of work on, on, uh, I mean, from writing articles on, on just deer hunting or i mean you even have articles out there on fishing but you'll a common theme you'll come across is shed hunting and um even when and at the end of the show we'll we'll tell listeners how to how to track you down and everything but you've you've really kind of become an authority on uh shed hunting and just from kind of getting to know you a little bit uh, through, uh, of course, the, the last time we interviewed and you and I have, uh, exchanged some, uh, text messages and stuff about shed hunting in the past. You're, you're a really humble guy when it comes to, uh, shed hunting, uh, despite the fact that, that a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, probably view you as one of the, the go-to people to, to learn about shed hunting from. And, uh, so I, I don't expect you to, uh, necessarily, you know, uh, puff up your chest when I say this, cause I know that's not really your personality, but you, you've definitely have, uh, contributed to, uh, I think we could probably officially call it the shed hunting community at this point, just because there's enough people out now who are uh, looking for antlers. And I would be one of those people who got into it much later in life, you know, didn't grow up hunting and, and doing a lot of stuff centered around deer at all. You know, I definitely was in the outdoors fishing and, and backpacking and hiking and stuff, but, but not deer did not come into my life until uh, much later on. And interestingly enough, uh, it was shed hunting that I did before I ever went deer hunting. And so, uh, I think there's probably a lot of people in that, that same, uh, category now, as we look at the expanding world of shed hunting, but probably one of the most impressive things that you have accomplished in your career working in the outdoor industry is the book you wrote on shed hunting. Um, how long ago was that, that you uh, published that book? Oh, that actually came out in uh, late 2006. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's been so. A while. Yeah. As far as shed hunting goes, the the number of people looking for antlers at 2000 in 2006 compared to 2021, to me, and and just from talking to other people who've shed hunted for a long time, it seems like that group of people has dramatically increased. Would you agree with that, or have you not really seen that? 
Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, um, that was kind of like right in the area when it, when it was really starting to become more popular. Sure. And it was it was something I struggled with for a while too because I, I got this idea to write the book like quite a you know a couple of years earlier and you know I knew that I'd slit my own throat if I'm you know if I'm <laughs> educating people on how to find sheds. I mean, I mean honestly, I, I did consider that because yeah. you know it's I look mostly on public land and but uh, you know I've had so many good experiences and ran across so many great shed hunters that you know are just good people and it's it's a fun activity. And so, you know, I, you know, I like to teach people how to do stuff when I, when I do something fun, you know, I've got two younger brothers. When I, when I learn how to catch a fish, the first thing I want to do is bring them along, you know, and yeah. show them, you know, the fun that I experienced. So that's kind of what uh, helped me to finally just, that's the, that's the way that I decided to write the book. It kind of pushed me over the edge. It's like, well, I can help people do something that I enjoy too. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I think I said this the last time that we, uh, we recorded, but um, I actually came across you and that book by listening to the Wired to Hunt podcast on my uh, way up to, uh, or way out to go hunting. One of the first few times I'd ever gone hunting, and uh, I needed. I, I'm a like chronic uh, narcoleptic when I have to drive after dark <laughs> sound like an old man probably, but, but I get so sleepy and I had, I had just kind of come across podcasts, you know, total, uh, late, late, uh, to the party on that one. But, but, um, I was like, Hey, here's a, here's a podcast on shed hunting. That sounds interesting. And, uh, I went ahead and I remember I was, uh, I think we were stuck on, uh, the the runway at um flying to uh my in-laws who live in new hampshire uh for christmas and we were stuck on the runway and i don't know about about you maybe there's a few listeners who can uh identify with this struggle here i get super claustrophobic when uh the airplane is just like sitting on the runway and and then especially when you have like everyone standing there in the aisle right next to you and you're like tucked underneath you know the uh luggage area right above your head and everything and so uh one of the things i did to cope to take my mind off of the claustrophobia was i was like started thinking about shed hunting or something and i was like Oh, I just listened to that podcast recently. That guy named Joe Shed, he wrote a book on shed hunting. I should check that out. And so I uh, ended up ordering that book while I was uh, having, you know, avoiding a panic attack from being stuck on the airplane. Oh. <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, so anyways, I ordered the book and uh uh man, I read that thing uh, cover to cover and highlighted it all up and I got to say it really did help me uh through the years find more sheds so uh if you were if you were planning on looking for sheds down here in my neck of the woods i you may you may have in fact hurt your uh, shed count a little bit <laughs> but, but uh, i am i am grateful for the knowledge i got from that book and so uh definitely uh the reason i i, I asked you to come on the show tonight because i think uh, it'd be a tremendous help for anyone listening in but one of the things that i remember uh, reading that book, and you even mentioned this in that original uh, episode that I listened to that I think is helpful for people to understand, is just some of the biology behind deer shedding their antlers. I, I would say that if you were to poll the general public and ask them about 
deer antlers they would be able to of course they've seen enough deer crossing signs if they're from the midwest on the highway to they would they would know what you were talking about but then if you said something about those antlers falling off once a year and uh them growing new antlers back every year i would say that a small percentage of the general populace would know that that was a reality so can you kind of just explain uh, maybe a Cliff Notes version here of kind of the biology behind that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess, you know, um, for starters, I guess, you know, horns and antlers are, are similar things, but they're different. Um, you know, yeah. uh, sheep and goats have horns and they, they're born, you know, with their little the horn buds at the base of their skull and they continue growing, them, you know, larger and larger throughout their whole life. Um, Whereas an antler um, um, that starts growing when a buck is about one year old and uh, they'll grow from generally April and then they'll kind of harden that um, the velvet will shed, you know, probably September ish. Mm-hmm. So just a few months that antler, you know, goes from nothing to a fully grown antler. And, uh, and then, you know, the following winter or spring, then they'll shed it off and it'll regrow next year and usually bigger the next year. So it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's two different tacks in as far as horns and antlers, but, uh, um, uh, the shedding process itself, um, I believe is it's linked to testosterone, um, as a, you know, after the breeding season, after the rut, <clears throat> the buck's testosterone levels will drop and it's kind of, uh, goes in concert with, uh, um, decreasing uh, day length as we get around, uh, you know, late December. And, uh, so somehow through the magic of all that, the lower testosterone, it, uh, um, there's cells called osteoclasts that form, if you want to get really technical, yeah. <laughs> that form at, at the juncture where the, uh, the, um, the antler grows out of the skull. And, uh, if you've ever looked at the, the base of an antler, you know, it's rough, it's kind of sandpapery mm-hmm. uh, on a shed antler. And uh, what's happening is the calcium, uh, I've said, is, uh, antlers are mostly made of calcium and phosphorus. So the calcium is actually getting kind of pulled back into the skull. And uh, so as the calcium is uh, reabsorbed like that, uh, you get these little strands called spicules that uh, hold the antler to the, the skull. And eventually when those that connection becomes too weak, as the calcium gets pulled back in there, the uh, antler just breaks off. And uh, that's, I guess, the long and short of it. Yeah, yeah, that that's that sounds really good. And uh, one of the things I remember, I remember you saying in your book. I think that's where I read it, or yeah, I think that's where I heard you say it was in your book. Um, I guess read what you said, but uh, a lot of times you can tell a fresh shed antler, uh, meaning uh, you know within the last probably, I don't know, maybe week or so by that little waxy ring right around that rough sandpapery uh base of the antler there um how how long have you kind of observed before that starts to wear away just so people kind of have an idea on timing when they find an antler yeah oh uh, well that's a good question um and i think every bucket is different too um i i think that wax ring and it probably depends on uh, probably a bunch of factors, you know, is it in the snow? Is it on snow? Is it above snow? Hmm. Um, it probably depends on a few things, but I think that wax ring can probably last a couple of months oh, okay. or, or maybe, sure. maybe even two or three months because, um, you know, I found sheds and 
you know, you know, March or whatever that I, I suspect were dropped early because, you know, there were the amount of snow, but I don't really have a way of knowing that for sure. Um, but I think it, I think that wax ring you're talking about can last a couple of months. Um, and you know, a, a real fresh shed will still have blood on it. And sure. some sheds seem to be bloodier than, than others. And I think that blood goes away pretty quick. I would say generally within a yeah. few days, maybe a week tops, but, um, and you know, I, you, you just never know unless you, you know, have a, have a shed, you know, fall off in your yard or a feed pile or something where you, you know, it wasn't there the day before or something like that, where you can definitively say, you know, when it was dropped, it's, it's hard to know, um, when it was dropped and therefore, you know, how long that blood has been on the base. But, um, I think it, it varies among bucks too, about how much blood there is there. Sure. I, I've seen people who will, they'll, they'll be doing a little shed hunting or something and they'll, they'll post a picture or a video or something and they'll, they'll show like this trail of tracks and they'll, they'll show like little drops of blood next to the tracks. Have you found that, that, yeah, that happens enough to where that means that that's probably an antler or is there just such a minimal amount of blood that if you see, if you see blood along the, uh, a deer's tracks that it's probably from, you know, getting nipped by a coyote or something or, or, you know, some other injury, maybe from hunting season or something. Uh, or have you kind of noticed that as well that, yeah, they'll, they'll drip blood while they're in the process of shedding. I guess I haven't had enough experience with finding, uh, you know, enough bucks that were freshly shed like that. I, I think there's definitely something to it. If I find blood, uh, drops of blood, I'm certainly going to follow it up and down that trail in both directions because um, I, I have heard of people finding sheds that way. I think you mentioned that in the book too. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, I guess you look at the color of the blood too. Like I think the bre- uh, blood would be pretty bright red in that case. Um, sure. Um, but yeah, there's always a possibility. It's just an injury, you know, something like you said, a coyote, you know, had maybe got a piece of the deer or maybe he's just even, you know, cut himself on the, you know, sharp snow or something. I mean, who knows, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm certainly going to follow the the blood if I find any, uh, actually we found, uh, yeah, um, some friends of mine actually found a shed, uh, a couple of weeks ago that actually, um, not only did it still have blood on the base, but it had a little bit of blood like on the antler itself, like higher up, like that deer must've stood over it for a moment and, huh. and the blood dripped off of its forehead on, onto the antler. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's quite the find. That's really cool. Yeah. Now when a deer sheds an antler, I think I read, I think it was in your book, but, but uh, I think I saw it maybe elsewhere too. Somebody suggested kind of the same thing. Uh, you, if, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the method you suggest when you find a side, you kind of do, what is it like a a hundred yard radius around that shed and then just kind of work your way in back towards that shed. Is, is that your method for matching up a, a side? Well, I'd work outward instead of. Oh, you work outward. Okay. Um, Yeah. Just, yeah. That makes more sense. You're saving time that way. Yeah, the first thing I'd try to do is try to determine the direction of travel. I mean, if if that thing fell on a deer trail, then, uh, you know, I I would probably walk up and down the trail both directions, you know, for at least 100 yards. Um, otherwise, if, you know, there's no snow or mud to, to kind of see tracks, I kind of try to, 
intuitively try to figure out what the deer was doing when he was there and sure. which direction he might have been traveling. Um, and then after that, I would probably do some concentric circles. And, you know, if it's, you know, sometimes they're, you know, sometimes, you know, they fall right on top of each other, right next to each other. And, you know, sometimes they're 20 yards apart and sometimes they're a mile apart. You just, hmm. <laughs> you just, yeah. there's no rhyme or reason to, you know, if the first one falls, how, how quick will the second one fall? Yeah, that's a good, that was actually going to be my next question. So I'm glad you, uh, you cleared that up and what, what percentage of the time are you successful with matching up a, a side? Do you think? I'll say I have a batting league or a, a batting average, like a national league, uh, pitcher. It's pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, uh, I'm there with you, man. <laughs> it, it depends. Um, you know, it, it seems to be, I don't, I, yeah, I I hesitate to say that. I was almost going to say it seems to be a regional thing, but it, it definitely does seem like some areas the bucks tend to drop their sheds together, you know. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, if they're close together, they're you've got a much better chance of seeing them. Right. Um, yeah. And and that's a that's a thing to be aware of too. Uh, I've had situations. The thing where people find sheds kind of the thing that everybody likes to do is take a picture of it as they found it laying on the ground. And, right. Uh, more than once I've been standing within a foot or two of the match and didn't even realize it. I'm so focused on that. Oh, I saw an antler. There it is. Yeah. I'm so focused yeah. on it that you, you need to kind of look around or, or walk right past it on the, on the way to it. You know, you walk past the match and it was even closer, you know? So that, that's something to be conscious of. Cause I know yeah. I've, I know I've done it, and I, I shudder to think of how many more that I walked by that I never realized I did it. <laughs> I know. Well out there. It's a painful consideration, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Caribou, elk, moose, antelope. Coos deer, trophy whitetails, oryx, sika deer, doll sheep, and mule deer. What do all these critters have in common besides their delicious backstraps? They can't all be hunted in the same state, meaning that at least one of these game species will require you to purchase a non-resident hunting license and tag in order to hunt them. Now the rules of the tag application game are wildly diverse from state to state. And if you are looking to complete a bucket list hunt, you are going to want some help to make sure you are setting yourself up for the best opportunity possible. And that's where tag application and hunt planning agent Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts can really help you out. If you've listened to any of the episodes we've had here on the First Gen Hunter podcast with our buddy Alex, then you know there isn't anyone who cares more about the details of tag acquisition than him. Alex not only will help you through the hoops of the tag application process, but he will also help you plan the details of your trip that will get you where you need to be in order to have your best chance at filling your tag. And he is offering a 10% discount for First Gen Hunter podcast listeners such as yourself. All you have to do is purchase a service through his website, alexgruen.com. That's A-L-E-X-G-R-U-I-N.com and use the code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, 
and you will receive 10% off the hunt of your lifetime. You know, I think that does make sense now that you say that, though, that that it could be a regional thing because I got to imagine um, that a lot of that has to do with pressure. You know, if a if a deer is in an area where there's just, you know, either a lot of human intrusion, so maybe somebody who's who's uh, finding sheds in like urban parks or something like that, which is actually how I find, found my first shed was in a very urban area and, and uh, just kept hitting the same city park day after day and, and finally found a shed. But those deer, you know, they were, had to constantly be on the move because people were walking their dogs. People were letting their dogs off the leash. You know, they, they just, they, there was no way they could have sat in one place. Whereas if you go to, you know, middle of nowhere somewhere on a grassy CRP ridge or, or, uh, you know, a bed of or, a, you know, a stand of cedars or something that's way out of the way. I imagine those deer just feel so un, unthreatened and, you know, they found a nice comfortable spot there out of the wind and, you know, there's probably a better chance that you're you're going to match up in those areas, but nonetheless, they still move, so could be a mile away still with yet. <laughs> but right. Uh, but I I that that makes sense. That at least makes sense in my brain for for uh, thinking about it that way. But well, you know, um, w- speaking of this idea of antlers being close together, a phenomenon that I've heard of. Uh, coming from a year like what we're having right now which is you know it's it's kind of fun when you look at shed season from year to year because really each year brings about its own little nuances you know how how much snow is there how cold does it get um were there more sunny days than than cloudy day? you know you can go on and on down the list but this year we're definitely having a a it started out as a pretty mild winter, you know, where temperatures were almost always above freezing, it seemed like, all through December and, and through much of January. But we do have quite a bit of snow on the ground, and we do have quite a bit of ice uh, that's mixed in those <laughs> strata of snow that we uh, keep getting and adding to. But also we've had some some, you know, like right now we've had some really brutally low temperatures and i've heard it said before that that in hard winters deer will kind of clump together a little bit more you know whether i mean of course they're you hear it all the time the statement that deer are social creatures so you know that could definitely be part of it and maybe they're kind of bedding a little bit closer to to uh, during those harsher times or uh you know it's probably what's more likely is that's just the best spot to be and so when when things are really rough uh deer end up there but i have heard people who will find you know just a a pile of sheds in a relatively small area you know maybe like a maybe like a a 50 acre area or something you know they'll find 10 15 sheds or or even more you know have you have you been able to connect the dots on that much for harsh winters finding sheds piled up into uh tighter spots? I think there's a, a few different things that are at play there. Um for one thing, you know, you might have a hot food source. Um 
um, it might be at one particular field that maybe was left unharvested or, or they were a little sloppy in the harvest or something or, sure. or you know, alfalfa field that stayed a little taller. And, I mean, that's the food source. I mean, I've seen fields where, like, one field has 80 deer in it or something. And oh, man. When, when, you, when you've got that situation, you're going to find sheds, like multiple sheds in that area. Um, another thing is with the harsh winter is <clears throat> if you get a lot of snow, um, they're going to kind of stay together, and, you know, then they'll pack down the trails. I mean, it's, it's so yeah. much easier to walk down a packed trail than if you're out, you know, breaking your own trail every place you go. So, right. um, so they'll be grouped up in that that's respect. That's a great point. Um, yeah. So that's, that's pretty typical for around my neck of the woods is, is deep snow. And, and, uh, you know, in, in the wintertime when there's snow on the ground, I'm basically just looking, you know, either on the trails or, or in beds just off the trail. Um, just because they're not really <clears throat> roaming around and, you know, they're, they're kind of staying where it's easiest for them to walk. Sure. So, uh, and, um, and, you know, the other thing is bucks a lot of times will just hang out associate with other bucks um you know you might have does and fawns doing their own thing and you might have a big herd of deer over there but then you might have a group of you know two three five bucks that are just kind of hanging together and they might just kind of be on the fringe area they might all the deer might go into that hot field but when it's time to bed down or whatever the bucks might just kind of be over there while the does are off you know in their own area too they they do kind of separate themselves sometimes so when you do find that one shed, you know, it's, it's not unusual to find sheds from other bucks right in that spot. Mm, that's a great point. And, and maybe you don't have an answer to this cause it's kind of a, <laughs> it's almost an unfair question cause it's kind of tough to answer, but, um, have you kind of, I don't know, maybe instinctively just because you've looked at so many deer tracks through the years, have you kind of been able to determine a, a doe fawn area? And, and kind of, you know, say, okay, this is, this is probably, you know, all this sign here tells me doe and fawn family group. And then, you know, you, you match up some of the, you know, connect some of the dots elsewhere. And you're like, yeah, this is probably a, a buck spot. Or is that just too impossible to even try and you do? Know, there's, there's probably guys that could do that. And I guess I just haven't paid quite enough attention to it. Um, you know, I think, you know, from the stuff that I, I read when I was back when I was writing my book was that, you know, the, the bigger trails, you know, if you've got a hot food source, everybody's going to go down that trail to get out there. But sure. when it, you know, in other situations, kind of the bigger, you know, big cow pass you might see might be more doe and fawn oriented and the, especially mature bucks are kind of going to want to do their own thing and kind of be off by themselves a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe be in a little different bedding area, you know, someplace they're, they're going to take advantage of the places where they get the, you know, the wind at their back and the sun on their face. I mean, they're going to take some of the best bedding areas. So, um, I've talked to some people that are really, really better students of deer than I am that, that probably could do that. But as far as, as myself, I would say no. And, and the other thing that I wonder too, is a lot of times that, you know, yearling bucks might still associate with those does and fawns and it's the older bucks that might, be off by themselves and i do find a, a abnormally large number of yearling buck sheds and you know one that's you know there's going to be more yearlings in a herd than you know older deer because you know sure. there's, there's fewer that reach that older age class but uh, i almost wonder if i'm not looking in the wrong spots where i'm 
um, looking where there's, you know, it's biased towards yearling bucks when I should be maybe looking at in different areas. And that's something I've actually been thinking about this winter. So hmm. I don't know. Jury's still out on that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really good insight. That's, that's really helpful. I've kind of had that same thought before too. You know, I've, I, there's some people that just seem to have a propensity for, for finding, uh, really nice sheds, you know, and, Mm-hmm. And uh, until the the story I was I was telling you about this year that that dead buck that my buddy and I found that had shed those ended up being really nice, really nice antlers off of him. But before that, my my biggest shed that I've I found is you know significantly smaller. And so I've had that same thought of you know am I all this deer sign that I'm locating and, and spending time around is it is it that what you just described where you know maybe i'm around just where only you know that one to to two you know one and a half to two and a half year old deer are hanging out you know as opposed to i need to be prioritizing these types of features instead you know that's yeah that's a that's that's a good question to you know i think every shed hunter should should consider because that's kind of how you can get to another level probably is when you start looking at things that way but that's a that's a really good point um you know you mentioned a little bit your your habitat area for deer up where you're at is i guess you'd probably would can you know consider that to be the uh big woods kind of right I mean, up there in uh, yeah. Minnesota, what in northern Wisconsin area, that that's a that's a totally different uh, <laughs> shed hunting situation than what I have down here in the ag land of Iowa and Illinois. Right. Um, we we do have some we do have some hay fields there, but if there's a if there's a cornfield in the county I live in, I don't know about it. It's, wow. It's, very different <laughs> yeah that's that's totally different <laughs> man wow that's 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 hard for me to imagine here in the midwest <laughs> there's just everywhere you look around here there's corn or beans but no that's that's a good point that we make though because uh shed hunting for you is gonna since since the landscape is so different is going to be totally different now what what time of year are you usually you know starting to think okay now's when there's going to be enough sheds to to where i'm going to be uh picking them up i guess i'll start looking uh generally you know right around new year's um i don't really start hitting it hard until march um you know you know you're gonna have kind of a trickle shedding season you're gonna have bucks that are gonna start dropping antlers in december you're gonna have some that are still carrying in march you know so sure um I, I, you know, if, I guess it depends to where I'm looking to, if I'm looking in those urban areas in town where like the deer are, are identifiable and everybody's gunning for the same antlers, I'll, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get at that a little earlier and often, you know, because, you know, you know, and I don't feel too bad about it because those deer are pretty used to seeing people. Um, they interact right. with people on a daily basis and, and, you know, even if it's not shed hunters, it's people walking down the hiking trail. So I don't feel too bad about pushing those deer around. Um, the, the deer that are like, you know, quote unquote, more wild deer out where they're not used to seeing people. I don't like to bother those ones too much. And, uh, I usually like to let the snow recede anyway and, and, uh, wait until, you know, most of those bucks have dropped their antlers. So March is when I really start hitting it pretty hard and, 
and, uh, and my next woods, April is, is usually my best month. Um, and I'll, I'll find sheds right up till the very end of May. Wow. Wow. All the way into May. That's crazy. <laughs> well, that's kind of, that's probably part of the reason you can do that though, is because you are so far North around here by, by late April, we just get such a green up, you know, that, that, uh, it kind of almost becomes a, an act in futility to go looking for, looking for sheds after, you know, late right. April or so. But no, that's, that's really, that's really cool. That you get that long of a season there. Well, whitetails obviously has been, you know, kind of your, just from, from reading the book and from, you know, seeing the other content that you've put out through the years, that's kind of been your, your bread and butter, but you've definitely done a lot of other shed hunting, uh, for, for other species of animals. And, uh, one of the, the coolest things, and and honestly, you know, a, a lifetime goal of mine you know, somebody who lives in an area where there's a lot of moose probably thinks it's kind of ridiculous, but I would love to find a moose shed sometime. And I know you've done uh, quite a bit of moose shed hunting before. So what what exactly, I mean, first of all, is there a unique time of year that is different for moose shed hunting than, than there is for whitetail hunting? And then, you know, what kind of habitat or, or food sources are you prioritizing for that? Okay. Yeah, well, moose, um, everything is a little bit earlier with moose. Um, their rut is about a month earlier than whitetails, and they start dropping about a month earlier, too. So it's not unusual for a, a moose to shed in November. But uh, um, the biggest factor for me and when I look for moose antlers is when I can look for moose antlers because <laughs> they tend to live in some areas with some pretty deep snow. So oh, accessibility so. becomes the the name of the game, you know, can you get in there with a truck or a snowmobile or, or on your foot or snowshoes. And, and, you know, even if you can get in there, if, you know, those sheds drop and, you know, a lot of, a lot of them will drop in December and by January, a lot of those moose antlers are down, you know, and, and then you get a foot of snow. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if those antlers are under that much snow, I mean, so I, I've never found one now in uh, the early stages of the winter, I, I usually wait till the snow is either gone or, or close to it. Um, and that might be April, late April, the earliest and often into May. So it's, that's the biggest factor, I guess, for moose antlers. Sure. Um, as far as, as the habitat they're they like young forest. They like, uh, you know, their browsers, they, <laughs> they eat a ridiculous amount of food at, on a daily basis, as you can imagine. <laughs> I think some, Something like forty pounds just to keep them going. Wow, you know, um, you know just to maintain <laughs> through the winter. You know, and, and <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of food, big big piles of droppings. If you come across a dropping, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, I bet so. But uh, so they're eating uh, young stuff. Um, um, they're twig eaters. They eat a lot of uh, um, hazelnut, and um, they'll they'll eat some balsam if they can if there's nothing better they eat uh, birch and aspen and um uh dogwood they love dogwood and and some of the younger maple trees so uh they're they've definitely got their preferences but at, at the end of the day they need to they need to eat a lot of food too so <laughs> they get a little less picky if they get hungry <laughs> no that's that's good information for sure so here here's a question i've i've had since i've really been thinking about moose shed hunting you know, I you always picture like 
moose living in these really wet areas, you know, kind of almost like a marsh or a swamp. First of all, is that accurate that they're spending time in those areas during shedding season? And then the second part of this question would be, if they are, do you imagine that a lot of those antlers end up in the bottom of a marsh somewhere? <laughs> well, um, so no, the, uh, they don't spend a lot of time in like that. Uh, if you were thinking about the quintessential moose in a, in a, in a, along a lake eating, you know, plants like that. Uh, yeah. That's not really the case in winter time. Sure. Um, they will spend time in, uh, um, these, um, balsam, uh, balsam swamps or black spruce swamps. So, so they are wet and swampy. And when I go in there in the spring, it's, you're basically bog hopping from tree to tree. Um, so they will definitely spend time in there cause they provide some good cover. Sure. Um, a lot of these areas are, are going to have like young brushy cover and then they'll have these mature swamps and they definitely utilize those swamps. And I imagine that those swamps are full of green antlers that are just you know rotting away because of oh, you know, the swamp environment. It just hurts my but, heart. Uh, there's there's one thing that this this kind of boggled my mind. This was uh, 2018. I was you know just walking along shed hunting and I found I could see it from like 50 yards away. This big barn door of a moose antler, and uh, I was right along right around the edge of a beaver pond, and there was a trail that went right around the beaver pond. And this is this is the biggest brown moose shed I've ever found, and so I really wanted the match, and I looked and looked and looked and just gritted the area. And I think I found four, three more within, you know, 350 yards of this one. Wow. All, you know, all in this brush along the beaver pond, but it was, it was tag alder, which doesn't really serve any purpose for moose at all. And I just, I don't know why they were there. And I asked another guy that finds a lot more moose antlers than I do. And I asked him about it. He's like, I have no idea why they were there. But uh, I, I always go back there, and I, I was back in there last spring, and I found another nice, uh, not as big, but a, another nice brown moose huh. antler, you know, 20 yards from where that one had been you know, two years earlier. And I don't know why they're there. There's no food there. There's no cover. Obviously, the beaver pond is frozen. Sure. But uh, for whatever reason, they're there. <laughs> but that's, that wouldn't be the first place I would search. But <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's really interesting. So, uh, you know, another thing that that I imagine has to go into that, like you just mentioned, you end up finding a, a whole pile of them after you found that giant one. Those babies got to be a lot heavier than whitetail antlers. So how do you yeah. strategically handle that with, man, you got an armload of moose paddles. What Do you, do you just pack them in a, a pack or do you create a pile somewhere that you're going to come back to? What do you do with them? You're talking to the guy that paddled a moose for 19 miles. I have no idea. I, I haven't thought it through that far. That's right. That's true. Actually, well, you know, so it's it's brute strength. Uh, um, that day that I was talking about, uh, that big one weighed, I believe it was 16 pounds. And Man. I had five of them that day. And, uh, so I was over, it was over 50 pounds ahead of my backpack. So basically oh, you just try man. to get it to the closest road or, or, or whatever you can do. Um, you know, and, and the worst part is, you know, you're, you're walking, you know, in these really brushy areas. So you got these paddles on your back and it's, 
you know, you try to walk in between two trees that you could fit through normally, but you can't now. And it's, it makes you wonder how they ever walk through the woods. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine having, I mean, what is the wingspan on those things when they're still on their head, you know? 50 inches is kind of the, the benchmark for a trophy bull, but yeah, you can, you, you, yeah, you can definitely get six footers, you know, Alaska or whatever, six footers, seven footers even. But, uh, yeah, that's even, even if you've got a three foot spread, that's to go through that kind of brushy terrain, it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a good point. I should have thought of that. Cause a lot, there's that limit in, uh, in Alaska in a lot of places where, uh, hunters have to, I think it, if you're, it's different, right? If you're a non-resident hunter versus a resident hunter, but, uh, I think I've heard, but, uh, it's like a, like you said, like a 50 inch minimum or something like that. That's just, yeah. which is, I mean, a lot of places. that's, that's still huge. You've done a little bit of uh, shed hunting out West as well. And, um, you know, we could probably ask you, ask the same question there on, uh, how do you, how do you pack out all those elk sheds? But, uh, you know, that's something that, well, you know, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, you know, you just got back from, from Montana, but, um, you you haven't obviously had as much experience doing that as you have with with um uh whitetails and and moose just because of you know where you're at but what what is it about elk and mule deer that you've started to learn from your time of looking for for elk and mule deer antlers well that's a good question and like you said i i haven't done uh too extensively i guess i've been out uh, out in El Camulo country, looking for sheds probably, I don't know, five or six times. Uh, uh, okay, maybe seven, but <laughs> not, <laughs> not a lot. Um, so there's still there's still a lot to learn. Um, you know, one thing, they, they shed a little later. Uh, the mule deer were just starting to shed in January when I was in Montana, just starting to shed. Um, most of them still had racks. The elk won't shed till they'll start in March, and then oh, wow. a lot of them won't shed until April. So they're a lot later. Sure. Um but, uh, um, you know, they're, you know, those two species, um, they like elevation. Um, we were in areas that had whitetail and mule deer, um, and the whitetails would be way down low on the fields and the river bottoms and the, the muleys would be up in these bluffs and it, they didn't have to be necessarily high, but they had, you know, they definitely had a little bit more elevation than the whitetails for the most part. And, uh, so, so then you're, you're thinking about the slope, the aspect of the slope and, a lot of them will, will be on the, the southern slope where they're soaking up the sunlight, but um, some of the bigger animals, like you know, a really mature mule deer buck, he might be just across on the north slope, and um, that's a tip that I, I learned when I was out there. And uh, I'm not sure why. Um, you know, again, it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about. Maybe the the more mature bucks kind of doing their own thing, staying away from the younger uh, bucks and does. Uh, might be a little bit of that. Uh, also might be that that north slope is probably a little bit uh, shadier, uh, wetter, um, maybe has a little bit better food growth. You know, it wasn't as, as dry. It maybe had more food in the summer. And, and being a, a bigger animal, um, a bigger bodied buck would probably be able to withstand a little bit colder temperatures than, than, uh, than you know, does and smaller bucks. Sure. Um, so that was, that was one thing I picked up. Um, but uh, there's definitely still a lot to learn out there. And 
uh, I guess one of the things that you learn coming from the Midwest as a flatlander is that those guys out there, they, they have binoculars and they know how to use them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't have the patience to sit there and just pick apart a, a hillside for an hour, but uh, some of those guys are, are real eagle-eyed with binoculars. And, they, yeah, they find their sheds with binoculars, whereas I like to just walk until I find one. And um, you can put on a lot of miles in a hurry trying to pick up sheds out there, whereas a guy that would be patient and sit there and glass a hillside and um, could maybe spot a, a few of them and, and then just could maybe uh, make a more organized method of uh, going to pick them up. Yeah, yeah, that's a good tip for sure. I I have always carried a set of binoculars with I shouldn't say always, but I'd say 95% of the time when I'm shed hunting, I try to have binoculars with me just because of really not be I mean of course you're optimistic when you're going into shed hunting I'm going to spot all these antlers from way far away with my binoculars but but usually it's just so I can identify that yep for sure that's a stick and not an antler <laughs> but uh mm-hmm. uh last year I ended up uh spotting my first ever uh antler with my binoculars man was I glad I had them then but but uh <laughs> Yeah, out there, you know, in the Midwest, uh, like you said, us flatlanders, we we don't get much advantage from it, but but uh definitely I've I've seen the same thing that that you have from, you know, just watching YouTube or whatever, seeing what other guys do out there, but the binoculars could could definitely pay off for somebody. So, have you, you you mentioned the reality there of elevation. Does that seem to be more of a factor than than uh cover or or food sources or or um is it still just yeah you got to pay attention to elevation but really it, it's gonna it's gonna be the the food and the cover that are the main thing that's sorting the, where these these animals are going to be found Hey, First Geners, I hope you're getting excited to get out there and start searching the frozen tundra. Well, at least that's what it is here in Iowa. But searching the whitetail woods for those beautiful antlers or maybe the uh, uh, swamps of Minnesota. Or I guess you could even find some moose sheds out west in like Wyoming. And I think in Idaho they have some moose. Or maybe even just some elk and mule deer out west. Whatever it is you're looking for, whatever sheds you're looking for, I hope you uh, get out there soon and are able to enjoy that. But we're actually going to shift away from shed hunting for today's tip of the day. There are so many shed hunting tips in this episode. I figured it would be good to branch out a little bit for you. And one other excellent thing to do in the spring. In fact, we're going to hopefully have a whole bunch of uh, uh, episodes focused on this, which would be turkey hunting coming up this spring. So today's tip is going to be about turkey hunting. And if you've been on the First Gen Hunter website, you'll know that I have almost no turkey hunting experience. Yeah, I wrote an article about it last year about how I finally went and gave it a shot. Uh, The only thing is I never got to actually take a shot because I never saw a turkey. So why am I giving you a tip of the day on turkey hunting when I am unbelievably unqualified? Well, because I know good people. And one of those good people is a familiar voice to you if you're a longtime podcast listener. That would be the voice of our buddy, our the voice of our friend 
Eric Acre from Fly True Productions up there in Minnesota. Eric loves hunting turkeys, and uh, it was fun. We were, we were having a good time catching up together uh, just over the weekend, and uh, he started asking me if I was going to do some more turkey hunting this spring. And, of course, I was like, yeah, man, although I'm, like, kind of intimidated by it because, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing yet. And he offered me an excellent tip, and it was so good. When he told it to me, I was like, you know what? I'm using that for this week. I told him, I was like, dude, that's the tip of the week tip of the day for this week maybe i should call it the tip of the week i don't know whatever but it is the tip of the day and it is coming from our buddy eric and that tip is to get yourself a uh turkey diaphragm mouth call okay so a little piece of uh rubber uh, sometimes they're surrounded by plastic i think there's even some that are made of wood and uh some that are made of metal but you put them in your mouth and you uh uh, can learn how to make a turkey hen yelp uh, with with that call in your mouth and uh, it takes a lot of practice but it's handy because then you don't have to have your hands occupied with a with a box call or a uh, uh, slate call and and you know then maybe when a uh, tom comes out you got to carefully put that down without making too much noise believe me i used a box call last year and i was i was surprised at how easy it was to uh make inadvertent calls from the box call we'll just say it that way and so being able to use a mouth call has a lot of advantages but it does take some practice so when do you practice well if uh you have a wife and kids you could practice at home the kids will probably love it and your wife will probably slug you uh, so you might need to think of some other times to use it. And the, the tip that Eric gave me was use it when you're driving to work and driving home. You know, maybe while you're tuning into this very podcast, you could have one of those diaphragm calls in your mouth. Just don't hit the brakes too hard. Or you might uh, be calling like a turkey for the rest of your life. But uh, don't get that thing embedded in your tonsils or anything like that. But safely, you know, keep it in there and, and start working away at trying to... Uh, master the old diaphragm call uh, while you're you're got that alone time in your car uh, or uh, maybe you know you could be out for a walk while you're uh, looking for sheds and and uh, you could use it then but find a way to kind of double up maximize maximize the time that you do have to learn that new skill that'll help you in the turkey woods this spring well there's today's tip of the day let's get back here to episode number 42 a shed hunting conversation with mr joe shit well i think you know to a to a large extent you know elevation is cover too um, yeah, that's true yeah. you know and uh, i guess it it depends i mean i've i've looked in areas out there where you know it wasn't really mountainous it was like bluffs you know, they, they weren't, you know, these big monsters, things when you, like, think of the Rocky Mountains, and there'd be mule deer and elk in that, too. And then you've got, like, you know, the Rockies where you might be, you know, thousands of feet up, and um, that's a factor, too. I, I know some of the, on one particular trip, we were we were starting at about 5,000 feet elevation, and each day we work up to about 8,000 feet. And I'm not, I don't remember, that was quite, quite a few years back, but... I, I don't remember why we had to go that high. If we were up on, you know, plateaus or we're kind of flattened out, I think a lot of times, you know, they use those as feeding areas or you might have like a sage flats up on like kind of a, 
a higher bench or something. Um, so I guess that, that would go into food, but, um, one place in particular where we were finding elk antlers years ago, it, it was, uh, it was kind of the opposite of what you would think it would be. It was like a open grassy area. And then as you got up towards the top, it was trees up there instead of, hmm. you know, getting above tree line or something. And that's, that's definitely where the elk tended to be was up in the trees. And we had, uh, I think that was in that Western video that we did, uh, well, the first day we shed hunted our, our way out to the trees. And by the time we got to the trees, it was late enough to the day that we had to turn around and come back. And we realized that that's where we should have started. And uh, <laughs> so we went back there a few days later and just made a beeline for those trees. And we only had about two hours to look, you know, in, you know, to beat, you know, to beat darkness and get back to the truck before dark. And, uh, but in those couple hours, I think we found about a half a dozen elk antlers. Wow. That was the ticket up in the trees. So, you know, and there's, you know, there's so many nuances and I still, I just haven't even scratched the surface yet with the Western stuff, but it is, it is interesting and it will kind of, you find out how out of shape you are in a hurry out there too. (laughs) Yeah, the elevation and, and uh, like you said, just so many, so many uh, more miles, you know, I've, I've heard people say that, you know, we get these giant, eyes when we look to the west you know we think of the opportunities that brought our you know the the people that were alive a couple of centuries before us that brought them west you know they just look look there and they see all that opportunity they think of the the cool critters living out there or we do you know and uh but i've heard somebody say you know it's so vast there and and the difference in in climate, you know, leads to the the difference in habitat. And what can actually live there, and you compare that to the the um, biomass of you know, like like where you're at or where I'm at here, or you know, going to places like uh, uh, Michigan or you know, down into the Ozarks and, and Tennessee. You know, these areas that you you would classify much more as like a, a green landscape and and uh you can go a long ways out west without really coming across a critter just because the landscape is so huge whereas you know here in in the midwest or you know down in the you know really out to the east coast uh the habitat is so much more compact and there's so many more places for these things to be hiding <laughs> and and uh you know there we, we kind of lose track of that reality, you know, you, yeah, you can see an antelope, but it's, you know, <laughs> two miles out there, <laughs> but, but, mm-hmm. uh, I, it's a good point. And, and, uh, definitely the, the, uh, altitude thing. Um, I, I got that awakening, um, when I went out to, uh, uh, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's wedding a few years ago in Colorado out near Vail. And, um, I hadn't been out that way in probably, you know, a decade and man, <laughs> I realized real quick, I had gotten really old and really out of shape since the last time I had been there. <laughs> and I just yeah. remember thinking that if I was shed hunting right now, this would be kicking my tail. I'd be in some, some serious trouble. So it's a, it's a good thing to remember for sure. Well, Another thing that that you and I be, before uh, we were recording here uh, that that we talked about, you've done a 
a uh, caribou hunt in the past and i imagine that could probably kind of like the the moose hunting story could be a could be a story in of itself sometime but i've heard it said before by people that have that have hunted caribou the way they kind of uh uh herd up that you can just find you know quite a few caribou sheds you know if if you're in the right spot without even really uh you know working too hard to to find them it, did you find that to be true when you were doing some caribou hunting yeah we definitely found some caribou sheds when we were out there doing that um you know i i never shut it off i'm always looking for sheds no matter what <laughs> but yeah yep. um, we definitely found sheds out there um a caribou uh they, uh, the bulls drop a lot earlier. They drop in October and November, the, the mature bulls. And uh, the cows, you know, what's interesting with caribou is they all have antlers. Cows have antlers, right, too. Yeah. And uh, so anytime you see the those uh, salmon with his big reindeer pulling a sleigh with all those antlers, you know, that's just a bunch of bogus because <laughs> only the cows would have uh, antlers at that time. <laughs> um, the cows you just ruined Christmas for color. so many people. <laughs> I know, I know, oh, I know. I'm the Grinch. <laughs> but uh, the cows will retain their antlers until they're tatted, you know, about May or June. So uh, that's um, interesting. But yeah, so we found. I think we only found one bull shed out there, um, but we found a lot of cow sheds that were just you know real small antlers, and uh, so. They, you know, caribou in particular, like kind of like you were talking just now, they, you know, out, out west, they roam. I mean, you can have these huge herds, you know, I mean, hundreds, even thousands of caribou, and uh, they might be here today and gone tomorrow, and the, tomorrow there might not be an animal for miles, you know. And sure. That's kind of how they are. So we'd find some of these uh, sheds out on the tundra, and it, um, so I don't know if this was like more of a calving area that we were finding all these cow sheds out there or or who knows, you know, I, I'm always trying to analyze why these sheds are here, why they're not, you know, but maybe, I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we definitely found them. But it made it hard to hunt because I'm, I'm staring at the ground and I should be staring, you know, looking out for, you know, animals in the distance. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. When I'm, whenever I'm doing anything outside, whether I'm fishing, you know, a farm pond in the, the summer or, or, uh, you know, just uh, walking a, a hiking trail or something. You know, I'm always I'm always scanning, and I'd probably do too much of that when I'm driving down the road too, <laughs> looking for that <laughs> the the elusive road shed, right? But mm-hmm. no, that's a that that's a dream there of mine too. Is to sometime uh, do a little uh, do a caribou hunt, but also a caribou shed hunt at the same time. I I think I'd be pretty distracted looking for looking for sheds. Oh yeah. <laughs> So did you get to bring some of those back with you when you when you found them? Yeah, definitely. We we brought them all back. That's awesome. That that makes the to me that just makes you know puts the icing on the trip for sure. That's pretty cool. Right. But um, well, you know, as we draw to a close here, and and you know these a lot of these tips could probably be found in the book. So, you know, I would definitely encourage listeners to. Uh, look up Joe's book, buy it, and uh, it will make you a better shed hunter for sure. Like I said, I've gone through and uh, highlighted that thing up. It actually, And not just for shed hunting. It made me a, a lot better deer hunter too. I still have a long ways to go for both. But uh, it it, uh, 
it definitely, uh, you know, just just helped me learn more about what deer are doing and, and kind of how they they spend their spend their life. And if you want to be a good hunter, you got to understand that stuff. You got to understand what uh, what the animal does that you're hunting. And so. I, I would definitely encourage that. So don't you don't have to give us everything here, Joe. But what would be like just a couple uh, of uh, I you know ideas that you would you would suggest for someone to to put as a part of their shed hunting strategy? Uh, just some some go to tips that you feel have increased your own shed count through the years. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is you know, especially in, in agricultural areas, is to find a good food source. So you know, not every field is going to have 80 deer in it but if you can find one that does that'll sure help if you can get permission to shed out there yeah but uh you know just uh so you're not just showing up cold let me do a little scouting ahead of time and and learn you know you know drive around in the evening or before dusk see where the deer are coming out and, and uh which areas they prefer and if you can get access to that land then, then you've got a good starting point um me being a, a bed oriented shed hunter, you know, where we don't really have a lot of defined food sources, you know, I'm always thinking about that uh, south slope, the southern exposure, whether we're talking the south side of a hill, um, the south side of an individual tree, hmm. um, it's always on the south side as I'm, as I'm always kind of thinking, um, even as I'm walking through, you know, the forest, I'm always, you know, I, I like to walk east and west if I can. And always looking to the south and uh, looking to the southern exposure of, of a tree or a deadfall or, or anything like that, that a deer could, you know, get tucked up against and then have that uh, sunlight, you know, beaten down on them where they can kind of warm up a little bit. Sure. Um, that's, that's always key. Um, I really like um, evergreens as far as, as beds go. And um, what, you know, it's one thing to have like a, a dense stand of conifers, but what I really like is if it's just a, you know, a conifer here or there, like, you know, a couple of spruce trees out in the middle of, a, of an old, old overgrown pasture or, hmm. or just, you know, uh, here's a, here's a hardwood forest, but there's a couple of, uh, you know, pine trees in it. You know, they, they do like to kind of go out of their way to, to bed underneath those trees, especially if they're kind of an oddball on the landscape where they kind of stand out from everything else. Sure. Well, that's that's something I'm always looking forward to. Those are those are great tips, and um, like I said, if you uh, take a look at Joe's book, uh, get get your hands on. It. There's there's so many other tips in there that I've. I mean, I could I could name a few of them here, but again, I don't want to I don't want to keep anybody from uh, checking out Joe's book. But I'll I'll tell you this much: I have made those tips you know, almost second nature at this point now when I'm shed hunting that, and they've been extremely helpful. And, um, you know, some of the things, um, you, you wouldn't even think that it would make that much of a difference. And, uh, one of them I'm going to throw out here that, that I'm thinking of is, uh, uh, the, having the light at your back when you're looking, it just, it, it, that just really helps pick up the shine of an antler without it getting, you know, really uh, <laughs> you know, blotted out if you're walking into the sun. And, uh, you know, having just making a little subtle adjustment like that can can uh, make a huge difference. You know, Joe kind of mentioned it earlier in the show. And um, another friend of mine who uh, I'm hoping to get on here uh, at some point this spring, too, to, to pick his brain a little bit about about shed hunting 
uh, both these guys have really kind of said it, but you hate to know what you've walked past too. You know, it's great finding them, but, but making some of those subtle adjustments can really help you, uh, uh, make up compensate for what you aren't seeing and, and maximize your, maximize your miles really that you're spending out looking for them. So definitely, uh, some good tips there. All right, uh, Joe, I have one more question for you here. This one may be shed hunting related. It may not be shed hunting related, but you have spent a million hours out in the woods. And uh, I got to imagine that you have seen some pretty interesting things. What is the craziest or coolest thing you've come across? Well, I'm glad you prepped me with uh, that question in advance because I had a little time to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think think probably the strangest thing I ever found was a plunger, a toilet plunger. Whoa. Um, It was was in an urban area, and there was was a lot of garbage and stuff around. But, yeah, it was still a plunger. It was a little surprising. Even even in the middle of the woods in an urban area, I don't know why that was there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, actually, and this is kind of cool too. I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. This just came to mind. When we were in Montana last week, we found a, uh, a rock and it wasn't like a, you know, wayside ahead, old historic, you know, landmark, you know, let's pull over and see it with the kids. It was in the middle of nowhere. We were miles from a road and there was a rock and somebody had carved their initials into it. And uh, the date was 1871. And he said he was in the, uh, uh, U S seventh Calvary. So Whoa. that was 150 years ago, and it just kind of blew my mind. It's like, wow, that was 150 years ago this year, and uh, yeah. it's just so remote. And it's like, what, what was this guy doing out there? What was he seeing? I mean, it's the history behind it was just kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, wow, that is really cool. Wow, man, I I, I want to find something like that sometime too. You know, you hear you hear about people. That, that just find the craziest old artifacts or something, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool though. I mean, to, to have somebody who, who, uh, you know, was, was standing right where you were. And like you said, in the total middle of nowhere and, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe it'd been 150 years since another person had touched that rock. You know, that's pretty, yeah. that, that's, that's a, that's a pretty special find right there. That's, that's really cool. Well, I'm glad I asked. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun getting to hear those stories. Uh, I'm a, I'm a sucker for those kind of stories that I remember, yeah. uh, maybe, uh, three or four years ago, field and stream did an issue and like the, the main story in, in the issue was, um, lost and found in the in the in the woods and just seeing the things it, it, it was stuff that would have definitely made the list there it was it was stuff like that that people had turned up through the years and it's just really cool what what you can find if you're looking and i'm gonna guess here you know i don't want to ascribe any superheroes to us shed hunters but if someone's gonna find that cool stuff it's probably gonna be a shed hunter you know what i mean We're, we just got the eye <laughs> <laughs> and we're the only ones crazy enough to wander the wander the planet staring at the ground the whole time but but uh no that's that's a that's a really cool find 
Well, you know, when you're when you're a kid and you're you're feeling awkward, you know, walking around like in public down the sidewalk with your with your head on the ground, not looking at people. Now <laughs> yeah. it makes sense when you start to shed hunt. Now it, it all comes clear. That's right. <laughs> There's a genetic predisposition, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, as we uh, wrap this one up, Joe. Obviously, uh, we've we've been talking about it a little bit here, but how can people? Uh, track you down and and uh, uh kind of get in line for following uh, joe shed outdoors okay well i've got a, a website it's pretty easy it's goshedhunting.com and you can get my book there and i've also got a facebook page called go shed hunting that i'm offering a lot of tips on mm-hmm. that site and just posting some neat finds and you know having people share their finds stuff like that too and then i've got a youtube channel going called joe shed outdoors that uh, I'm going to be uploading a bunch of videos this uh, spring as well. Yeah, definitely check those things out. I I see stuff, and, and Joe's really active on those pages as well. Uh, so there's, like he said, there's a lot of uh, tips, but also just really cool finds uh, that that he has. And you definitely want to watch the videos because there's there's two things about his uh, his videos that he posts that you'll enjoy. One, he finds a lot of sheds, and for whatever reason. It is fun just watching people find sheds. It's not as, of course, it's not the same thing as like when you're finding them yourself. But if you can't get out for whatever reason, and you can watch somebody else find sheds, you kind of get like that little, uh, that little uh, taste of of that joy that you get from finding sheds. And it's super, it, it like gets you all uh, pumped up for for when you do get to go shed hunting yourself. But then the other thing is, a lot of Joe's videos are just downright hilarious. Uh, <laughs> Your deer season uh, uh, music video you did this year had me like in stitches, man. That was <laughs> that was great. Oh, we've got uh, we got a bunch more of that kind of stuff coming too. Awesome. I got to sit down and put it together. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it takes you a lot of time, but uh, it probably drives your uh, girlfriend nuts a little bit too, right? When you're. Uh... <laughs> well, she's- She's in on it, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The one you had last year for shed hunting, the don't play with matches. And uh, wasn't some, didn't somebody dress up as Smokey Bear or something like that? Yeah, well, we've got a, we've got an Easter Bunny costume. And then it was the Easter Bunny was, was uh, sitting there rattling the antlers together. And then uh, I came up and uh, we had the Smokey the Bear sign that says Smokey's friends don't play with matches. That's right. That's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's good stuff. That everybody needs a good laugh and and a, and a good outdoor themed laugh too, which is which is fun. You know, it's kind of like the you know maybe you're the the new aged uh, red green there. You know, <laughs> got the, got that outdoor themed comedy going. But well, Joe, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's just a, a tremendous time getting to talk with you and. Obviously, you have uh, some really diverse experiences out in the woods. And uh, I strongly encourage everybody to uh, check out Joe. So head over to GoShedHunting.com. Look up Go Shed Hunting on Facebook. And, of course, uh, again, I, I can't say enough. Check out the book. The, the book really is helpful. And um, it's, it's easy to read. It's a, it's a fairly quick read, honestly, for as many tips as there are in it. 
and uh, it, again it'll make you a better shed hunter and a better deer hunter altogether. please also remember uh, even though Brandon's not here we still love him we still want you to go check out his website head over to thehuntfishlife.com make sure you interact with them on facebook and instagram as well and then please head over to firstgenhunter.com you can check out uh, all my social media pages on instagram facebook and go wild and uh, until next time people Get out there and do some shed hunting and make some plans to uh, take care and take someone hunting.